and welcome to yet another episode of the Dicer Screaming Podcast. Oh. Brought to you by Screaming Dice. <laughs> no dice were actually hurt in the making of this podcast. <laughs> Although some of them have some angry glares. Yeah, and some angry issues too. <clears throat> All those fumbles we've rolled over the years attest to that. Oh, being pitched across the room will do wonders for a dice's attitude. No, yep. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, it will knock some of the edges off them, though. Like some of my old mutter dies. Oh, uh, yeah. That's how they got that way. And just rolling across the table. You rolled a one per! Well, I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And we're coming at you, recorded, of course, but still coming at you. Whether you <laughs> want it or not, you signed up for this. Semi-live, conjured from the dead, raised from below, <laughs> and shambling like zombies. You just can't stop us all. All right, well, hey, it's a Friday, so we got Freeform Friday coming up for you. We've got a nice little topic. Yeah, comfortable rant, something that we can just relax, have a discussion with, not uh, not in the formal topic of Topic Tuesday style, but a little more lighthearted ramble. Yeah, uh, but we'll get to that and leave you in suspense in just a few, but... Uh, oh, we have a call-in, don't we? Yes, we, we do. A first-time call-in, so we always appreciate those. Uh, glad that you're all listening, and of course, as always, uh, feel free to let us know when we mess something up or don't get it right. We're always willing to own up to our mistakes, and because we have many of them. Also, uh, we like hearing things that we may not have known, because that's awesome. Oh, we're we're not in the camp of we already know everything, because we so abundantly do not. Absolutely, <laughs> and we're very at peace with that. So, <laughs> yep. So the weekend's coming up. So hopefully, I defy you to find someone who knows less than me. Oh, whoa! <laughs> Challenge accepted, sir. That's me. <laughs> So, uh, oh, before we get into the call-in, I uh, hope you got some gaming lined up for the weekend. If not, uh, during the week or whenever, I uh, hope that those dice just keep on rolling for you. And, of course, the gaming just goes on and on. Uh, as we talk about gaming, of course, we're also uh, still wanting a little bit in uh, the period of mourning here. Just wanted to let you know that uh, Rick Loomis, uh, rest in peace, sir, uh, he's having his uh, visitation down in Arizona. So Ah, ah I'm glad that. Uh, you know, there, there are opportunities for people to uh, have a visitation there. Yeah. Uh, he did impact gaming as a hobby, and he also worked with a enormous variety of people. Yep. The big guy at uh, the Gamma, the Game Association of Manufacturers something. Oh, G-A-N-A. Yeah. I remember them, yes. Um, so... Of course, uh, we're losing a lot of good folks, but uh, we also uh, we're talking about Appendix N on uh, Tuesday, so our new call-in is going to lead into that, so we'll just let that uh, roll on. So we'll be back after this. Hey guys, it's Dave of the Deeper Centile Podcast. Love your show. Haven't called in before. I was enjoying your chat about Appendix N. Yeah, I think you might be a bit hasty in attributing the collection of stories in the same shared universe to um, to the onset of gaming. I mean, you mentioned the Cthulhu mythos, but I think there are lots of there are lots of other literary precedents for that. I mean, one thinks of the earlier 20th century crime writers for example in fact getting together to um, write different chapters of the same story so they would 
one would write a chapter, another one would then write the next chapter, and another one would write the next chapter, which is getting towards gaming, but before the 70s. Um, so I'm not sure we can attribute that shared universe stuff to gaming. Anyway, I don't think I feel particularly strongly about that. I enjoyed the chat. I'm actually enjoying this quite a lot of what-if stuff going around on Anchor at the moment. So Shandy Andy recently of Unguarded Treasure um, explored a kind of what-if. If we hadn't had uh, RPGs come out of wargaming, would they come from somewhere else? I think this is a similar kind of discussion. Would we have got these kinds of um, shared literary universes without, uh, without Dungeons & Dragons? I think almost definitely yes, actually. And I would, I would, I would probably weaken that link that you established but i love the chats love the show all right and that was dave aldridge 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 i'm sorry forgive dave aldridge of deep percentile deep percentile podcast yeah we'll be checking that out and thank you for the call in uh, especially a first time one so yeah uh no i think you're absolutely right there that there were other uh collaborative efforts going on out there and we were a little remiss click click yeah, we didn't really touch on the give-and-take nature of it. There are uh, abundant examples, uh, not only in detective work, but also in the Shithulu mythos, uh, of writers working together in the same shared verse. So the idea is firmly entrenched well before gaming took off, but I do think it's been kind of a give-and-take relationship since the advent of gaming, where... Uh, whatever gaming may have drawn from the idea of the shared universe uh, and the shared experience, it has also imparted on a wider scale, uh, where this used to be like limited, tiny communities of authors that would just do these things. Now you see, uh, you know, this much larger stage with, you know, thousands upon thousands of people who aren't necessarily major creatives themselves, but they're participating in a shared experience, which... It does make gaming a really unusual hobby in that respect. But yeah, it is a what came first, the chicken or the egg, and I, I think you're right. It, it actually does safely predate gaming, but it did have a profound impact on it. Yeah, uh, and I don't think it's uh, unfair to say that uh, they may have uh, been inspired by some of the things going on in gaming, but yeah, you're, you're right that uh, we did have, uh, we may have been a little hasty on that one. I, I gotta mention the second part too, which was the great uh, reference to uh, the what ifs. The what ifs uh, about what gaming would look like. I mean, and that is a fascinating question. I mean, it, it's almost worth an episode in itself. Yeah, that's. But I, I am with you on this. Uh, the catalyst would have come from somewhere. I, I really think it would have happened no matter what, uh, because it was just burgeoning. It was something that. The urge to throw dice uh, and have characters and have an experience that is similar to these Tolkien-esque fantasy tales. You know, uh, everything was already in place and it was just waiting for a spark. So I I honestly think, yeah, it probably would have developed in some other fashion one way or another. Yeah, Greg Stafford was doing uh, stuff for his Glorantha with uh, looking at a board game, Red Moon, White Bear... Uh, Mark Miller had been uh, kicking around the idea of some type of game where you explore a proto-emergent uh, imperium type, imperial type space empire. He'd been uh, looking for stuff like that, and uh, of course that morphed into Traveler. But again, you know, these guys were working on it well before Guy Gax and Arneson sat down and worked around uh, to getting uh, rules for uh, 
fantasy role-playing tabletop. Yeah, board games probably would have been another major area uh, other than traditional miniature wargaming. Uh, board games were probably another area where this might have exploded out of that. Of course, it, it's all whataboutisms, but hey, I, it is a fascinating topic. I, well, what, yeah. what if? Uh, Marvel, the, Marvel Comics has done quite a lot with the what-if question. Yeah, that whole separate verses have come into being in comic storylines on the basis of yeah. a single change. Uh, also, you know, shifting the time and place of things is a time-honored tradition. Like, yeah. uh, oh, uh, you Gotham by Gaslight. Batman yeah. is, you know, someone in the 1900s. Uh, or, well, I, the tail end of the, the uh, 19th century. That yeah. would be it. Tail end of the 19th century, Gotham by Gaslight. Batman is still Batman. Yeah. The Elseworlds, yeah. Um, but, marvelous, marvelous discussion. We're actually going to have to jump on board that one sometime ourselves. Yeah. Uh, come up with some what-about-isms. Uh, but, I suppose, you know, we should uh, go ahead and deliver up some advertising. Uh, but thank you so much for that call-in. Yeah, so check out the blog, uh, or blog, the podcast, Deep Percentals. Yeah, uh, Dave Aldrich's Deep Percentals. Yep. And, uh... We'll definitely be doing that as well. But we're going to take a quick break for paying the bills, and we'll be right back after this. All right, and welcome back. Uh, we're here with some topic. Well, it's actually kind of absent, but we're absent-minded. <laughs> yeah, this this is uh, a topic loosely, but it, it's a thing that's going around the Internet. and uh, we, we are kind of ripping on a theme, Uh you know, we've had a discussion like this, the Gygax versus Arneson. Yeah, so, so tonight... Just to we're, give it away. We're going to do Holmes versus Moldvay versus Metzner. Now, I'll, before we get started, let's just uh, get a couple things out of the way. This is not a... Like, each one of these guys uh, is better than the other. Which one is the best? Fight! Yeah, I'm literally going to come out of the gate and say, point blank, I really don't like the tone that some people have taken... Uh, it was clear, you know, in the Gygax Arneson discussion that, you know, it, at least here at the Dice are Screaming, we're we're not really keen on the better or worse uh, categorization of game creators. Not really a strong hit with us. Uh, now, doing comparisons where, it, hey, some strong suits here, some weaker suits there, completely open to that. Uh, I understand entirely. You're you're looking at content and and how applicable it is and how entertaining it is and how appropriate it is. I, I I get that you can make value judgments, but it seems a little callow to turn all of these things into alien versus predator. Who kicks more butt? I, you know these are creatives who came out of an era where there was a lot of opportunity cropping up, and it does not seem realistic to categorize them in a way that, like, this one was clearly the superior artist, uh, or this one delivered more quantity and therefore is better. I, no, I, I don't think so. I think they were all a very important part of a time and a place, and each of their contributions meant something to us. So uh, we, we played <laughs> a great many of their creations, uh, and we're just consumed with gratitude for it. Like, thank you, we're not worthy! Well, right, and more importantly, a lot of people place emphasis on each one of these authors' various approaches on what is basically 
basic D&D as it was later coined, but we'll just get started. But uh, with all that out of the way, there's no rancor included in this, and uh, we're not looking to uh, praise one over the other. I think no. uh, it's pretty obvious that uh, the Metzner version was the longer-lived and more durable version and also was the largest in scope. So that's all we're going to uh, say, and we'll wrap that up as well at the end, emphasize that. Yeah, so, I have more experience with it personally uh, because it was available in stores at the time that I was first picking up D&D. So, uh, you know, this does not mean that it is number one with a bullet. It just means that I have a greater familiarity with it. But... Uh, to start off with, um, J. Eric Holmes was approached by TSR to write an introductory set for the Dungeons & Dragons game, which was, at that time, based off the original white box at the OD&D, or original D&D rules. And uh, he created a kind of an introductory to the game. And... Uh, what we're going to start with is just basically talking about each one and where they got their start with. Um, well, anyway, uh, the Holmes version came in a blue box, and uh, it did uh, have an adventure with it, uh, B1. It was a single manual, and it included rules to create characters, like uh, we're called fighting men, and dwarves and elves were kind of a class, but not really. They kind of had some options that you could add on to them, but... Anyhow, uh, there was basically, uh, in the Holmes version, it was more like, these are the rules, and this is how you play. And it was very straightforward. It came with a little introductory in the booklet, uh, a dungeon. And it basically, like, their magic missile, you had to roll to hit. Um, yes. It was It was not a auto-hit spell. It was a thing you just cast, and you had as much chance to hit as somebody else might. Right. And uh, it... It had a larger selection of spells than would be later available, but it was pretty much ripping off the advanced Dungeons & Dragons stuff, which it later referenced that, you know, if you want to know more, here's no. this game. Um, it wasn't kind of its own game, and of course, for legal reasons, the two brands became diverse and distinct from one another. And so that's when the Moldvay version in 1981 came in, and it started a red box. Now you're talking. This you know, we're getting into the zone where you know our our, our adolescent selves uh, first started to really stumble in. With yeah, the, I had the access to the blue box early on. I remember having um, reading about the like people I had to buy dice back then. You know, geez, you know, but it was still like in the late seventies, so it was one of those things. But the Mold Bay version came with a. Uh, of module uh, as well. It came with uh, B2, Keep on the Borderlands, which, of course, later the uh, now, Holmes version would also have as well. But uh, this also had the distinctive, not only just being in the box, you could buy the rule book itself separately from the box set and the module. But the rule, uh, the box set, the red box that everybody talks about is, of course, comes with a set of dice and a crayon to mark them with. <laughs> the infamous muddy dice. And Moldvay of approach to the rules was pretty much um, kind of races were classes, like the dwarf and the elf, which were presented in the Holmes version is kind of like, well, this is what they primarily are. Elf fighter magic is their dwarf fighter, fighting man. They changed the name to from fighting man to fighter, uh, probably following the AD&D game a little bit on that, because it did kind of make sense. A fighter, a 
guy who fights. Okay, got it. And uh, he had uh, a couple uniformity of the spells. They pared them down quite a bit and made it very approachable right off the bat of, like, these are the spells you get, and then you don't get any more um, for the magic user and all that. And, uh, you know, it was written kind of in a time where it was in a transition point when TSR was starting to get really big. And so this was put out into a lot of places that you normally wouldn't find them. Other things like Kmart and yeah. uh, even uh, small uh, uh, drug stores. I remember seeing one at a, a drug store. This is the era when they were first beginning to appear with advertisements uh, in comic books or you know on the back mm-hmm. page with a little mini D and D comic, uh, you know, giving an impression of what the game was like. I, I remember particularly the. Wizard casting a dimension door to get quickly from one place to another. Yeah, uh, or uh, casting a sleep spell on jackalwares. Oh boy. Yeah, uh, their sudden rise meant that they needed a coherent product. Uh, that the the line of products available needed to have some resemblance. You couldn't release a completely different game every two to five years uh, that bore no resemblance to any of the other materials. So. They had gone from a very tiny in-house operation to, oh, wow, you know, we got to ship out uh, 10,000 units to Kmart. You know, it, yeah. it was a big transition for them to make from, you know, operating out of a garage. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, it also was like it was three-hole punch, so you could put it in a binder, presumably. And uh, the next one that was released not too long after that, uh, David Zeb Cook uh, wrote The Expert Rules, which was four from 14, where the basic sets in both Holmes and Moldavay covered... One through three. And, like usual, it included a module, Isle of Dread. Yeah, this one uh, uh, included Isle of Dread, and uh, it had in there uh, another set of dice, too, just in case you didn't wear the other ones out. Um, <laughs> Which but was this quite one... possible at the time, because you, you've got to understand that about 40 years ago, there just wasn't a great marketplace for polyhedron dice, and... The production quality was not great, so some of these things just fell apart uh, within, you know, three to five years uh, from being regularly used or just being jostled around in mm-hmm. a in a travel bag. Uh, I still have a number of them that are absolutely. Tragic. And you can <laughs> didn't you have like a uh, tobacco pouch? I did. Uh, so you put your dice in. I I did. I I eventually acquired enough dice that I went with something a little more in the familiar gamer mode, Crown Royal bag. So, yeah, the, the classic clown, or Crown Royal bag that is the, the hallmark of gamers everywhere. But, uh, once upon a time, yes, a old tobacco pouch. I didn't know what else to use it for. Yeah. I back then, I didn't smoke. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, you were young. I'll put my dice in it. Why not? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the experts that pretty much uh, fleshed it out and... Um, we'll start discussing the uh, differences that a lot of people attribute to these, but I ended up playing around 14th level, and uh, it had a number of new and interesting monsters to challenge all levels of play, and a supporting uh, cast of lots of modules uh, for both basic and expert at that time. And then in 83, Frank Metzner would once again uh, revise the D&D line, and this one time he would start with a red box as well, with uh, cover art by uh, Larry Elmore, Riding a Red Dragon, 
And, uh, of course, the red box from Mold Bay had the uh, very famous uh, Errol Otis uh, yes. cover with the uh, sorceress and the fighter. A young fighting. Errol Otis who was just like the apprentice. Yeah, that was a really good cover. It was very evocative and uh, oh, I'm, yeah, very colorful. That, I, that, guy, that cat could, man, had an eye for color. Yeah, for a kid, uh, he was an amazing artist. You know, people... They they may hold it up against uh, artists like Vallejo and uh, others and go, well, you know, it's obviously not that good. Uh, this was a teenager at the time who delivered product consistently and had a really imaginative, unique style that you, you didn't see anybody else doing it. This was somebody who was their own person. So uh, I, I remember the, the Otis cover. Uh, yeah, that but... Was, the era that I got. In, uh, in. Metzner's uh, box, set, it, it came with two booklets, a player's booklet, which had a kind of a solo introductory adventure, and a little dungeon that you could start play with, uh, create a character and learn how to make uh, and equip your characters for uh, maybe a different adventure or something like that. But it got you right off the bat, and it also, by many accounts, wrote to a higher degree, where the uh, first... The Mold Bay version was more of an introductory. This was kind of like, okay, you're wanting to learn. Here's how you learn how to play. This is how you do this, and this is how you do that. And again, it would cover levels one to three. Now, they had a second booklet for the Dungeon Master, which, you know, detailed the monsters, how to adjudicate problems at the table. Little and, uh, miniature DM guide, you know. Yeah. But it was super stripped down. I mean, it was the bare essentials uh for a different scale of play, whereas advanced D and D, by by way of explanation, for any who may not have been familiar with how big a gap this was, a D and D, it was out already. Okay, the the DM yeah. guide and player's handbook and all those, that upper tier was a much more complicated and even I would say linguistically challenging because you you had to be pretty erudite, pretty learned just to make sense of a lot of what was in the advanced Dungeons and, Dra and Dragons guides. These, all of these earlier versions, uh, all of them were somewhat easier. But right, they were right, also... the, the Metzner version is probably the most complicated language of the bunch. It was the one, probably their magnum opus at the moment where they were most getting organized and delivering mass-produced product. And it was aimed at a slightly older market. It, it just well, right. It, it was a, for all ages, pretty much. But it was, it didn't talk down to you. It, no, you... You had a certain level that you had to understand. But it wasn't dense. And it was, first of all, approachable. And both Mold Bay version and Metzner's both uh, were taking the game Dungeons & Dragons in a different direction than AD&D. They yeah. weren't uh, beholden to it as much as the Holmes was version wasn't, excuse me. And so the Metzner version, of course, the first uh, didn't come with a module, and it also covered things like town adventures and other places to play besides a dungeon. Yeah, broadening the perspective a little bit, and I totally approved of that. You know, that. And uh, they would move the game. Uh, it kept most of the things that Mold Bay established, but it moved things a little forward. Both Mold Bay and Metzner also had different damage for different weapons, whereas the Holmes uh, version, just everything did die six. Also, the Holmes version, it should bear mentioning, their 
stat system was pretty much the AD&D stat system where you had to have pretty high stats to get a bonus. And the Moldvay version and Metzner both like uh, anything over 11 gave you a plus one at least and then up to plus three at 18. So every stat sort of mattered. But yeah, and you see in that the precursor of what they began to return to in the 3.5 era. Exactly. Uh, but uh, the next one was, of course, Expert, which covered pretty much the same thing. Uh, 4 to 14 levels of play. But uh, here's where it starts to take a turn. Is uh, Pardon me. The Expert box was just the Isle of Dread and just one booklet. Now, in... The next one, the companion guide, we return back with a, a smaller uh, player's guide and a uh, companion master's type book. And then it expanded play to subclasses. You had uh, the Avenger for a chaotic fighter, a paladin for a lawful fighter, and the knight for a neutral fighter who was beholden to a lord. And each one had different abilities. And of course, you could still be a uh, just a cell sword mercenary generic or general fighter i shouldn't say generic but a general fighter yeah plus the druid uh worth mentioning in those early editions uh and throughout the simpler version of the game uh there was not the axiomatic alignment table that we had yeah that we're more familiar yeah with. it was just uh, there was lawful. no good and evil there was just lawful neutral chaotic right and they kept with that alignment system and of course the companion set uh, broaden the scope now to that you were lords of a domain, and they gave the play for a lot of the demi humans, which were the halfling, dwarf, and elf. They all stopped at 10, the dwarf stopped at 12, they no longer got any uh, levels, but you still had to keep track of experience points. This started to now kick in with the, you got certain advantages as uh, attack ranks, you got a new kind of uh, bonus, and they started to talk a little bit about skills in this one. and management of your castle and keep which was in the mold bay version and uh the cook expert set uh castles and building strongholds was pretty well covered in the expert not so much in the expert but now in companion you've seen everything kind of coming together as well as with a mass combat system to handle running domains and occasionally uh what would happen when you run a large area or control a large area when you came into conflict with your neighbors or an enemy yeah also you know who to whom are you beholden uh, for instance, you may be called upon to defend the kingdom, even though your area is not under attack. And so, you know, I've got to uh, suddenly strip my garrison, you know, if you have 400 soldiers in your service, uh, you suddenly have to pull 300 of them and ship them off to the capital as they go march off to war, uh, and you're obligated to go with them. So you've got to leave just a skeleton crew of a hundred soldiers behind with your castellane and uh, whoever's in charge of that hundred soldiers. Uh, and that's got to defend your lands while you communicate back and forth by whatever means possible. It, neat circumstances that they added complexity to the more basic versions of the game uh, in stages. And this is, this is where Metzner totally deserves some terrific credit. Uh, and I know that it was an easy leap of logic. That, yeah. you know, what happens next? What happens next? What happens next? Same question. Uh, but advancing the level of play that was possible uh, was a smart move and a good way to continue the product line. Right, and it uh, really enhanced the scope of play. And, uh, 
you know, still great modules are being produced. I could uh, go on for a bit on this one, but since we're just talking about the additions, we're just going to finish up here that uh, basic 1 through 3, expert 4 through 14, companion 15 to 25. And then after companion was the master set. Now this is where you're reaching the penumate of mortal experience, where yeah. you literally are starting now to become the most powerful beings in the realms known. And both uh, the Moldvay and Cook and Metzner versions had the known world with the Emirates of Yalaram, the Grand Duchy of Karamikos, the Principalities of Galantry, and so forth. This was their world and campaign setting that they came with, but of course it was still optional what you wanted to use. If you wanted to use something different, your own, or even I've known some people who've taken uh, Greyhawk and transferred it to this, but... Nonetheless, now in the master set, you already have established that you're the rulers and the big power players in your area. Now you're starting to come into weapon masteries, and now it's getting to be a very robust game. Not a complex game, I'm not trying to say that, but skills are starting to be added, and now you're starting to enter the area where you kind of no longer just can say it's basic D&D. It is literally its own game with its own fulfillment. And of course this would come to the penumet of the later release of the Immortals rules where now you become gods. Yeah, this was the, the penultimate, the absolute top tier. Uh, and I think that's as far as the game ever went. I mean, no other version has really embraced anything yeah. beyond Immortals. Hidden uh, in there is a, a little Easter egg how you can win at D&D. If you go <laughs> from level 1 to 36... Become an immortal, go through all the ranks of the immortal, which is essentially another 36 levels, and then divest yourself of all those abilities, recreate yourself as a first level character, and repeat the same process. You'll technically win the game. <laughs> you know, you have reached, you experienced roughly what it can do. And although, of course, there's a little nod, I think, and a little wink on that. It's like, yeah, you know, okay. Well, you won when you had fun, right? Your DM better like you, because, you know, this. <laughs> Your odds of uh, making it through this in, in any campaign with me, it's uh, medium thin. <laughs> right. And so, you know, you, just, you had a full system that was fully expressed all the way through. Um, and that's no slight to Moldvay and Cook, who had the earlier version, which was starting to now differentiate itself from the AD&D game and make its own mark. Uh it had a little bit of flaws with it, like, okay, you play Halfling, and you like playing Halfling, but you're only going to get it to 8th level. And yet everybody still continues to climb this massive ladder. Well, with the companion rules, you know, it still kind of matters when you're ex uh, experienced. You don't level up anymore, but you have some doggone good saving throws as a Halfling. You can still make it to the game. And, you know, with weapon mastery rules and the expansion of the Halfling's... Uh, Domain, I think it was a the black flame that they had that they oh. could make items and small. Oh, uh, magic. yes, I remember that now. Yeah, I think the elves had the moon wells and or sun trees, the tree of life. That's right, they had the tree of life, and the dwarves had, the, of course, the magic, the forges. But uh, you know, so you could craft items for yourself, which puts you on par with a lot of other player characters or the player characters that were ever advancing, like human types, the fighter. Cleric, magic user, and thief who could just keep leveling up. Uh, so 
Yeah, it was it was a compensation package, but obviously the demi humans, uh, you know, were still curtailed in advancement, uh, which was contentious to some. Like, oh, now later, um, Aaron Alston would do the rule cyclopedia, which added a new race, the rack. Uh, oh, the Rakasta. Or the Rakasta, the cat folk. And I think a mystic class as well, like a monk, was added later. I think that came out in the Masters? Yeah, it was a Masters where the mystic came out. So they kind of added a monk class to the game um, later on as well. But the rule cyclopedia took all this, kind of uh, narrowed it down, and so all these rules were available right from level one, rather than each expansion you would kind of retrofit them. Sort of a callback to the original... Uh, version of the eight of the D and D game, the O D and D, where each you know, like Blackmore, Greyhawk, Eldritch Wizardry added a new facet to I, play. I got to ask a question that you might know the answer to because okay. th- this is one where you know like, I candidly admit that I, I don't know. Now, as this progression of uh, releases was coming forward, the uh, you're you're getting to the Masters and the uh, Immortals sets. For basic D and D, at what phase did Second Edition come out? Do these all predate the arrival of Second Edition, or had Second Edition begun? I think, uh, if I recall correctly, I think Immortals came just about the time that Second Edition was. I might be wrong on that, but it's either Masters or Immortals was about that time. Yeah, there was a point at which they folded the earlier line which they were effectively selling two games, the advanced version of the game and the more stripped-down version of the game. And there is an era at which that came to a screeching halt, and that was over, yep. uh, and there was just one D&D. Kind of like, you know, when, when, yeah, when D&D, the Great that, Schism that and that Catholicism, was, uh, you know, was stitched together. And, that was done away with kind of in the later half of, well, about the mid-'90s, uh, TSR would kind of let the Dungeons & Dragons fade and, uh, you know, try to in- incorporate Mistara, the world that was, the known world was given a name, Mistara, and it was incorporated into second edition and all this. But I would like to also say that during this time, the Gazetteers were released for the uh, D&D game, and those also expanded this quite a bit, including new magic rules for elves, and the elves of Elfheim, and uh, the Principalities of Galantry, and other rules as well were put in their naval combat for... Uh, some of the seafaring nations, I think it was the Arendi supplement. But oh, all that, man, uh, I helped, that made it a very robust game with a lot of complexity and detail. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of good things you can say about that, but rather than <laughs> it being a history lesson, you say, well, where's the verses? <clears throat> well, here's where it kicks in. A lot of people, especially during the OSR time, started to look back at the Holmes version was a lot different than the Moldway version. The Moldway version was different than... The Metzner B-E-C-M-I, or Basic Expert Companion Masters Immortal. And they would kind of uh, start butting heads over which one was better. Like, was the Metzner version one that was just a way to sell product? And It was a shilling. Very much like what we mentioned many episodes ago with regard to 4th, 5th, 3rd, what have you. Uh, the game that you had fun playing for the first time will lodge in your heart as your favorite. Uh, yeah. That's that's a su- purely subjective experience. You you cannot completely measure these things as worthy or worthless. 
just on the basis of uh, these criteria. You know, it, it's who oh, had yeah. what kind of fun the first time out. Yeah, I'm really, uh, I cleave a lot to the BECMI uh, a lot from Metzner because it was so robust and it was so fun. But I also like the kind of, uh, the feel of Mold Bay is a little different. And I'm going to be honest here, that's where I really cut my teeth as a DM and yeah. really started to jump on board. I mean, mm-hmm. I kind of got with the blue box, but I didn't have a group and I, and I fell right into AD&D. And then later, oh boy, you know. Uh, for a birthday present, they got me the box set, figuring that would solve everything. And, you know, uh, there was a Moldvay version. But, you know, I, it just confused the living I love heck the, out of me. The the Moldvay version and the expert set that came after. Uh, with the, well, the Moldvay version with the Otis cover uh, was my introduction, to, my introduction to basic D&D. The yeah, expert set. With the likewise. wizard looking into a crystal ball and, and seeing the... And I, uh, sorceress and warrior fighting the sea monster or the dragon. Who didn't like opening the expert set and finding, you know, Isle of Dread in there, which was just a really cool module. Uh, oh, yeah, and, and we've touched on that. With but, a T-Rex fight. On the oh, a T-Rex just, fight. Who? Yeah. Literally, ah. I defy you to find a, you know, t It's like Harryhausen module. You know, it's like Isle of Harryhausen. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was outstanding. But so. a lot of these chuckleheads that like to fight <laughs> over it, they imagine like, well, you know, the Moldvay version establishes that you know play breaks down after about twelfth 12th level, so it's useless to play. That's why they never went any further. Hey guys, sorry to burst your bubble, but it was at a time when TSR was rapidly expanding, expanding, and also for legal reasons, they had to make the line distinct from the AD and D line, and then. I think Metzner came and kind of moved it forward, maybe where it needed to be. Maybe that was the original plan, but it just didn't see it through. Yeah, and there's to, to we cast don't know dispersions, about that. To cast dispersions at the skills of the people prior to Metzner is ridiculous because Metzner was afforded both the time, opportunity, and funding to do whatever he pleased, uh, and clearly had success. I honestly think most of the others would have developed with the, the same level of success had they been the ones to show up at that moment in history. And it's not to rob anything from even Holmes. I mean, but there's people who say, like, well, Holmes, you know, it's, it was just really intended. Everything did die six. It was really simple. You didn't have to know a lot. Hey, I'm over simple, but there is a certain point that I think a two-handed sword differs a lot in the feel of it than a short sword. But, you know, hey, even Warhammer Fantasy roleplay used die six for everything, and yet they still had differences in how each weapon reacted and felt in your hands versus basically, what's the difference between a six and a battle axe? Nothing. Yeah, uh, rolling that die six, uh, they're perfectly willing to add pluses and minuses to it. It's the skill Uh. of the wielder. So, I get you, and hats off to the Holmes version where, you know, there was a different ethos there, but it was also a different time, and it was also working off of before the advent of the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, which would happen when you're in the middle of writing this. Yeah, the, the Holmes version can be accused of, of being unnecessarily simplistic and crude, but again, uh, this was D&D in its infancy, like literally still in its diapers. Yeah, and uh. it's still, you know, it's what... Uh, <laughs> We're seeing like what seventy two, maybe seventy five is where it's really getting released, and in seventy five especially. And this came out when he was doing like seventy seven, so it's like seventy nine, then eighty one and eighty five. Yeah, you're moving on or eighty three, excuse me for Metzner. Um, 
you're moving pretty fast and uh, changing new additions, but I would definitely say that the D&D game, as it was made to be, whether you call it basic or just D&D, it was its own game, and it was treated as such. And I think that the amount of modules, um, the Saga of the Shadow Lords expert modules, one of my personal favorites, uh, oh. Night's Dark Terror is also a robust module. It did come a little bit later in the uh, span. But, uh, of course, we can all agree to one thing. Keep on the Borderlands is obviously... <laughs> one of uh, the best early like campaign in a single book. Yeah. yeah. And it was available throughout the entire run of uh, the, the things, um, through all three. And it was pretty reasonably easy at that stage to segue and adjust a module to fit into one of the different versions. It was not incredibly hard... But it was a little bit daunting for teenagers to, you know, I mean, if you were 12 or 13 at the time you got your hands on these and you were trying to augment one of these modules to be appropriate for advanced Dungeons and Dragons, that was problematic. So it, it was necessary to eventually create a whole cohesive single system that like from henceforth, this shall be D&D and there shall be no others. Uh, I understand why they did that because the chaos that has engendered this argument over you know which release was superior, uh, that chaos is being discounted. You know, people are forgetting just how crazy it was. Where, mm -hmm. like, well, last year we had uh, a thousand orders, and this year we have a hundred thousand. That's the kind of things that they were going through in that era, where this sudden magnification of scale was more than they could handle. And they would put product out, and then it would almost instantly be necessary to put out something else uh, better than, more carefully thought out. Well, this time we had a couple of years to sit down and develop. Yeah. Uh, Whereas before, they were like, Jiminy Pete, we got to get something on the shelves. People are asking for stuff. What right. do we do? You know, gosh. <laughs> and also, you know, if there were mistakes from one to the other, each one was a little bit better than the next. So if you want to look at it from that way, sure, the Metzner version has that luxury sure. of having all those previous attempts to look at and see where there were shortcomings or they didn't do it right. I think, yeah, Metzner got it right. He had a solo adventure right in the first basic. They had two booklets, one for a player to hand out, or to hand out to players that didn't go away with all the secrets. Like, oh, what's the armor class of a ghoul? Well, here, you know, I'll just look it up in the back of the Mold Bay version. Oh, hey, werewolves uh, killed by silver. Which, I mean, that's an easy guess on the player's part. Sure. If, if you're a pop culture fan. If you have ever seen a late night <laughs> horror movie. Yeah. Um, but, again, here we are uh, going over the piddly details of what is each one is different. They were great games and they were there for the time and they allowed all the participants who picked one up to start playing right away. And I think that is the greatest homage they've been given and that you could go higher level in one or two of them. Hey, that's great too. If you don't like high level play, nobody forces you to get involved in all this. And of course we can all then look at the last incarnation, which was the rule cyclopedia which, for my money, if you had to be on a desert island and you only, <laughs> could only bring one book, that's the book I would choose uh, to bring with me. That's uh, due to Aaron Alston. And, of course, we're not talking about that because a lot of this clamor arises from people trying to attribute certain things to editions of the Dungeons & Dragons games that just really aren't true. They, if it's there, 
okay, if that's what you want and that's how you want to play, then go for it. No, no, yeah, it's fine. I mean, if if that's what you want to evoke in the gaming you're doing today, I applaud you. Because uh, if you're trying to bring back an, an air of the origins uh, and to recapture that feel of uh, <laughs> you know basement card table in 1978, <laughs> if you're trying to bring that back, Good on you. You know, good on you. It, it's it's a wonderful thing. It was a great feeling then, and I'm sure it's just as awesome now. Like a, a summer night when uh, you're allowed to be up late, and uh, your elf is down to just three hit points with a crossbow bolt in his back, <laughs> and you're waiting for the cleric to get in gear. Somebody better heal me up pronto. It's a good time. That's a great way to spend a summer evening. Calm your mittens, knife beers. Healing's coming. <laughs> Uh, no, those, I, I get the excitement. Uh, I just don't get the rancor. Uh, I'm not on board with the clearly better or worse. Uh, I'm very much, and as lame as it may sound, I'm very much in that neutral camp uh, because I can't bring myself to hold a grudge or harshly judge any of the people who brought the game to life in evolving stages with better and better funding, more and more staff, uh, you know, more time, more investment in quality materials. Uh, so you naturally see a progression of uh, events where it goes from an amateurish seeming uh, releases that I think are honestly almost more amazing just because they managed to happen. Um, <laughs> whereas by the time you reach the, the Metzner era, they were much clearer, much better quality, and much more carefully thought out, uh, but they had enormous backing. So yeah. uh, grading, you wind up looking at them all on an even scale. Like, uh, wow, you know, it's amazing they got that uh, white box set out at all. It's true. Yeah, <laughs> there were a number of things where they almost didn't, so... All right. Well, yeah, I, we we we've gone ahead and uh, we we found that dead horse, and by gosh, uh, we beat the tar out of it. We've worn a path in a circle now, so we're back to the beginning. So we would like to thank you again for putting up with us and us abusing your eardrums and your intellect. Yeah, we are the uh, you know you 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 put up with us long as long enough, and so we're we're back to our we're back to our flock. Uh, we are the lonely goat herd. Of gaming podcasts. The loneliest goat here. Well, yeah. That is us. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we'll bid you a good evening. And of course, if you have any comments, questions, or even some concerns, uh, just feel free to get a hold of us on the Anchor app or on our Facebook page, The Dice Are Screaming, or on Twitter, where you can get a hold of me at Death Hand Gaming, myself at Magi Box. And as always, may, may the, the dice, dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya. <laughs>